Houghton is just this amazing place. It's fascinating. It's yours for the asking. And that is incredible. Plus, it's cool. Welcome to Houghton 75. I'm Christina Thompson, the editor of Harvard Review. This May, in celebration of Harvard Review's 50th issue, we invited two of our contributors, the well-known essayist Philip Lopate and the award-winning novelist Lily King, to talk with us about their work. Held in Houghton Library's beautiful Edison and Newman room, this was the inaugural event in a new salon series sponsored by Houghton Library and Harvard Review. I began the conversation by talking about some of our aspirations here at the Review. We have this idea periodically at Harvard Review, which is, I have this idea periodically. So we're going to get, we're going to do this feature called Getting Poets to Talk About Their Poetry in which they will explain to us what it is they think they're doing. <laughs> the idea is not that this will enable us to understand the work, although it might, um, but it's really so that we can peer inside the writer's head, which is something that we love to do, those of us who read a lot and love writing. We like to peer inside the writer's brain. And we, so what we want to do tonight is we want you to tell us what you think you're doing. <laughs> That's what I'm hoping for. Now, I thought we should start with your most recent books for this reason. They are both departures from what you have done before. And as I thought about it, I realized that in Philip's case, A Mother's Tale is a departure not in subject matter, but in form. And in Lily's case, Euphoria is a departure not in form, but in subject matter. So, with that elegant <laughs> structure, um, I think we should start by having each of you tell us about this most recent book. And I think, Philip, you can start. Well, I've, I've written a lot of uh, personal essays, uh, and I've even written uh, about my mother in the past. Um, and uh, the, first, the first time I wrote about my mother, uh, it was in a piece called Willie, mm. and she said, uh, uh, she was very touched by it, and she said, now I realize that you love me. Uh, it was. T I wouldn't say ah because to me it's like what you didn't know I love you you know like <laughs> um, typical of my mother uh, to doubt it um, and then and then I wrote about her again and she said uh uh no you can't write about me anymore um, and uh, I she she said it's all lies and I said what do you mean it's lies uh, tell me what what I got wrong and she said well. You, it happened, but why must you write about that period all the time, meaning my childhood? <laughs> <laughs> I'm not like that anymore. You know, I've, I'm so much wiser now, you know. <laughs> so then um, she's, I said, well, I'm not going to promise anything like that. I'm going to continue to write about you because you, you spring alive on the page when I write about you, and so uh, tough, you know. So, so, <laughs> so she said... Um, she said, all right, well, I'll go to your book party, but I'll tell everybody you're my nephew, not my son. <laughs> uh, so uh, so this, this, this idea uh, lodged in my head, as it lodges in, in many uh, memoirists, autobiographical writers, um, that um, they're, they're not exactly pleasing the person they're writing about, mm. and, and, the, and, and the person they're writing about may see uh, himself or herself in a very different light. So about 30 years ago, I actually tape recorded my mother. I thought, okay, I'm going to give her the chance to, to tell her story. She wanted to correct 
these misapprehensions I had of her, um, which, which basically came down to the fact that I, uh, that I judged her in a different way than she judged herself. Um, so, so we met and she talked and she was a great talker and a great storyteller. And basically, I, I, I taped over 20 hours of her telling her life story over maybe five different sessions. So I got down the story of her life and then I put it in a shoebox, all the cassettes, and that shoebox sat in my closet for 30 years. Uh, and, and I'm often asked now why you didn't listen to them, and I really don't have a good answer. I just, I just put them away um, in a kind of a, um, I was kind of spooked by them, you could say. Um, and she died around uh, the year 2000. Uh, so she died about 17 years ago. And then about a year and a half ago, maybe two years ago, I, I said, well, time to take them out and listen to them. Uh, probably I, I, I felt uh, some sort of uh, inner tranquility that I could now deal with it because my mother was a very overwhelming person and, and, um, uh, and so I, I, I had you know, fought shy of listening to them for so long. But then I, I, I said, okay, well, let's listen to them. And I started listening to them and I thought, oh, this is, this is good material, you know? <laughs> um, and that's, that has nothing to do with anything particularly personal. That's just the fact that I had written about 15 books and, I, and I, I felt I knew what good material was and, and that this was too good to pass up. So I, I started transcribing them. So in any case, I was, I was fascinated with the flavor of, 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 this, uh, of her language. And, and, um, and 30 years old me was, after a while, was trying to get her to understand some things that I felt she didn't because she was a she was an amazing grudge keeper. Uh, she could keep grudges forever, you know? Uh, and so I was trying to explain maybe this other person had a different point of view, maybe she could let it go. Uh, and, and underneath that all, of course, I was hoping that she would uh, forgive me because uh, the, the, the main complaint seemed to be that, that I, was, I was too clinical. I didn't love her too enough. I didn't love her as much as she wanted to be loved as a mother. Um, and I thought I loved her fine, but you know she had a different <laughs> view. Um, so, so, um, so in part, I was trying to to nudge her when I in the days when I was tape recording her toward a <sighs> sounds so so condescending to say toward a more compassionate way of seeing things. Um, like you were going to change her after all those years. Yes, and of course, <laughs> lots of luck, you know. Yeah. So, <laughs> so we fought to a standstill. We actually, and, and in, the, in the book, there's actually like a, uh, uh, there was like a half-hour argument in which I tried to convince her that I loved her using logic, you know, <laughs> Cartesian logic. You know. <laughs> well, if X, then Y, you know. Uh, so, <laughs> so, so we, it ended up a kind of standstill, but I really felt that that, that that was tr much truer to life than the kind of on Golden Pond um, redemptive moment where the, the, the child and the, and the parent fall into each other's arms and <laughs> say, you know, now I understand, you know, and everything like that. Yeah. So to me, it was, it was, it was filled with the nitty-gritty of, of, of family life, you know, and of, and of how, um, 
how much continues to be irreconcilable in between the people who ostensibly love each other. Hmm. All right, we're going to come back to you and your mother. <laughs> oh, good. <laughs> She'd be pleased anyway. She <laughs> liked attention. Definitely doesn't seem like a subject that uh, you're going to ever let go of. Although, who would? Why I don't would think we? we do let go of our parents, frankly. No, I've, I'm with you. I'm with you on that one. Um, okay, Lily. Um, so one of the things that is thinking about how it's a departure for you from other work, it seemed to be the thing that many people uh, noticed about Euphoria. The first thing everybody said was, oh, look, it's a historical novel. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Right. I know it's not the terminology that you would use. Mm -hmm. um, but so maybe you can explain that. Well, um, the whole thing was a huge accident. I didn't, I didn't um, mean to write that. A friend of mine came over to my house um, and took me to a bookstore. You know, this was back in 2005. And uh, the bookstore was, she loved this bookstore. We had just moved to Maine. She was a new friend. The bookstore was going out of business. And um, I felt like I should buy something, you know, because she'd taken me there. And I couldn't find anything. And then finally I saw this old you know, biography from the 80s of Margaret Mead, and I picked it up thinking that I would never read it. And, and, I, and I did end up reading it, and um, it just got to this part uh, very, you know, fairly early on in the book where she was um, 31 and she was already on her second husband, and they were uh, in Papua New Guinea um, doing field work, and they were trying to avoid this other anthropologist, um, Gregory Bateson, and mm -hmm. then they then they decided to leave because they didn't want they wanted to be where he was, but he kept being there. And then and then um, and finally, you know, they just decided, oh, let's go meet him, and then we'll go to Australia. And uh, and Mead said in her memoir that they her husband got drunk very quickly. Like they met, I don't. He seemed to get very drunk and either asleep or just sort of incoherent. And she ended up talking to Gregory Bateson for um, 36 hours straight. And, and many she years after fell that. madly in love with him. <laughs> right. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And, uh, and so he, they, he begged them to stay. So anyway, this chapter in this uh, biography is about 12 pages. And when I got to that part where I realized they were there in Papua New Guinea, Papua New Guinea for five months in this very, very intense love triangle, and her second husband, Rayo Fortune, had a gun had a pistol, and she was convinced, she said in a letter later to her ex-lover, mentor, and dear friend, Ruth Benedict, um, that she was convinced that he was going to shoot her, shoot Gregory, and then shoot himself. And, uh, and there was just a lot, there was kind of a threat of violence the whole time, and yet they were also having these these very intense, intense conversations about their work and uh, about anthropology and about human nature and about gender and about, uh, you know, gender, race, class, everything that we're, you know, still talking about today. Um, and and uh, anthropology was just sort of at the beginning of its... Um, of its growth, really, at the beginning stages, and they were really on the cusp of changing it, and, and these conversations were happening, and I just read this, and I was like, and then, and then she was falling madly in love with him, and he was falling in, madly in love with her, and 
uh, Rayo was getting jealous, and it just seemed, and they were, you know, and she was, she just had these suppurating sores all over her body, and she, she had so many things wrong with her. She'd broken her ankle, and he would never um, admit that she'd broken her ankle, and she was limping around for like a year and a half, and, um, and just in a lot of pain as well. And, and you were deeply attracted to this story? <laughs> I just, this is exactly the kind of story I like. Um, except that it wasn't a family story. You know, I was really a family writer, and whenever I wrote a character, they always, you know, a mother, a father, a brother, a sister always walked in the room. I could never separate, just have a character without the rest of their family. And um, so that was the first thing. I was like, no, I'm not touching this. This is, you know, this is a love triangle about adults, uh, you know. <laughs> and, and then, you know, it takes place in Papua New Guinea in 1931, and uh, these people don't have running water. Um, I, I don't do this kind of thing. I didn't know anything about trying to do that kind of research. Um, and I just, I was like, that is a great story, and someone should write it, but it's not going to be me. <laughs> And, um, but then what happened was I was writing Father of the Rain, and uh, that was a really intensely emotional book to write, and I kept on having to take these long breaks. And when I took the breaks, I just kept on going back to the Margaret Mead story, and I, I had to you know, read the book she wrote about that time and read her memoir, read the biography of Gregory Bateson, which was just fascinating. And... Um, and, and then I started taking notes, and then I started imagining scenes, but I, all, all, the whole time I was telling myself, I am not writing this novel. I, am, I do not write historical fiction. I don't read historical fiction. I don't like historical fiction, you know. And, uh, <clears throat> but then I finished Father of the Rain, and I didn't have anything better to do, so I started <laughs> writing that story. And I just kept on thinking, you know, that I would, I would never show it to anybody. I just had to write it, you know, was my thought about that novel. I, the whole time I was writing it, I thought I was failing. You know, it wasn't, I had a vision and I had, you know, the reality, a sort of T.S. Eliot thing. And I couldn't, I just, I couldn't connect them um, for a long time. So um, the thing that, one of the things that interests me is a lot is how you pull different things together to pull, make a book. So you, I think of it as sort of, you know, drawing from the different wells. So there's the well of memory, and then there's research, you know, and then there's the imagination. And they're all kind of different. And they come together in different ways in different projects, you mm -hmm. know. So that's sort of what I want to think about just for the moment. For, uh, and when I was just, re I was reading your um, um, to show and to tell. Right. There's a, this is a craft book. It's a book about how to write nonfiction, and I really want to recommend this for anybody who is interested in writing in any shape, way, shape, form, whatever, because it's just a... I think what, it, what I like about it is that when you, uh, when you hear the voice of someone who has been writing for many, 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 many years, the things they say about writing just sound really, you know, they're wise. They come from a place of great knowledge. And that's the way I felt about reading that, and I enjoyed it a lot. There's a place, some, I think it might be in that book, where you talk about the difference between fiction and nonfiction. And one of the things you say about fiction that's so interesting is that it, it, it's, it, 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 crea it creates in the reader a kind of hypnotic state. Right. That it's a sort of trance state that you get into, and that where you lose track of the fact that you're reading. Yes. And that, yeah, mm -hmm. and that, you know, that in nonfiction, there's this idea of following the, following the mind at work, which is a more self aware, self-conscious or something, or sort of a active or something, or, or I don't even know what it's I mean. It's hard to forget that somebody is talking to you. You, you don't go into a dream state or a future right, state. Right, right. Usually when you're reading uh, uh, 
uh, most essayists, you know. Right, right. And, 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 and I found myself having written both, and I don't know how you feel about this, Lily, but well, I, I, you know, I've written a few novels and novellas, and when I write fiction, I feel like I'm in a kind of feverish state, you mm -hmm, know. Mm -hmm. and, and, um, and, and sometimes it lasts for years, like four years, you know. <laughs> and and, and uh, it's very hard on the people around me, you know, my wife and daughter, because, you know, it's like Earth to Philip, you know. Uh, I'm in this state, I'm in, I'm, in, I'm in an alternate state at the same time as I'm going through my daily life. And, and when I write essays, I, I simply feel calmer. Mm. I don't feel as, as, uh, as feverish. And, and uh, a coward that I am, I've come to prefer that state. You know? <laughs> I would like that. You're I need to take some of this would be interesting to hear from you on this because I find your books very immersive. Mm. You know, I find them very, that they do give me, I don't, I'm a nonfiction writer too and I sort of enjoy the same kind of analytic, self-conscious sort of state of reading. And so I don't read as much fiction, but when I read your fiction, I, I kind of disappear into it. I lose track. And that, you know, I think is, is really, what's it like to write it? <laughs> Do you lose track? No. It's like hard work. <laughs> this is maybe a bad time to ask me. I, I've been working on the same book for a couple of years and it's been really hard going, you know, where I feel like that I can't point to very many days where, where I feel like I lost myself, you know? I, um, and, uh, but just in the past week, I'm, I'm gonna totally destroy it now, um, but just in the past week, knock on wood, uh, I have, I've, I've kind of gotten somewhere with the book, finally, where uh, it is, um, time passes in a different way, and um, I, things, I, I feel, okay, well, the full truth is that my parents both died last year, and, it did a number on my imagination. It it seemed to like. Tell us. I, I don't. I, I don't know. I, I couldn't access it. I did a lot of writing in my journal. The thing I, I was in a novel. I had done all this research for another historical novel, and uh, <laughs> I had started in on it. I I had so like pages and pages of sort of ideas and everything, and I had started in, and she, my mother died very very suddenly out of the blue, and I just. Um, I, c I couldn't go near it. I couldn't go near it. I've only looked at it just once and then put it away. And I don't know why. It didn't have anything to do with her or anything. But um, when, after I started, I just wrote in my journal. That's all I did during my writing time. And, right. then, and then finally, I started another novel. And it, I, I, it's sort of, um, I'm trying to remember m m a lot for this novel. It's, it's fairly autobiographical. And... Um, I, I wasn't able to get to that uh, to that present, wonderful state yeah. where you where you where you combine uh, memory and imagination mm -hmm. in this beautiful way that seems to just expand everything and um, and it feels it feels so right and it doesn't I, you don't even know what you're mem remembering and what you're sort of imagining slash dreaming and and that has has happened to me a lot. Uh, in certain things that I've written, and it wouldn't happen. I couldn't get off the ground. I couldn't. I could just. Well, don't you think sometimes something, something so big happens, like the death of parents, that you know, you s that, that that just it's takes grief. center stage. That's what's happened. Right. And 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 um, you know, I 
I keep having this problem with Trump, where you know, like, <laughs> it's, I knew it's, it was going to come up. Thing. It was just a matter of time. <laughs> uh, no, it's I'm true. Try, I'm trying not to think about it. Don't think about it. No, it's very uh, true. You know, uh, it's so a uh, you know, so you ha sometimes something big happens, and then you know, you have to, you either have to. Uh, give it a to do, or else you have to try to put yourself on a diet. Like I will only think about this one hour a day. Or something. Yeah, yeah. I didn't really feel that after a certain point that that um, that thoughts were coming in and intervening. It just it felt like a quality, a part of my personality was gone. Like mm. I couldn't access it, and it was very scary. Mm. And and it and it you know again, what it really feels like it's come back right. a little bit, and I can I can now play in a way that I haven't been able to play in my mind for a long time. And that's funny that you mentioned the Trump thing because um, it's strange. I, I feel like I'm almost insulting my parents in some way, but I feel like I've had three deaths. I feel a lot of the feelings that I have I'm about really Trump and the way I wake up and it's already in my head and I'm already you know, wrestling with it. It feels very much like I felt when they first died. I <laughs> no, I do feel that, that uh, one thing I like about about writing um, essays and nonfiction is that I, you know I can I can approach it by saying what do I think about this instead of uh, uh, being you know laid low by some powerful feeling you know yeah um, I know that feelings yeah. have to come into it you know yeah but I can start at a place that's a little bit more reflective you know and that that you know that feels like okay I, let me just work out these thoughts on the page, you know. That's interesting. One of the things that I wanted to ask you about, and I'm sure other people ask you all the time, is that you're, you have these, as you said, you have these kind of hothouse family scenes, you know, s stories, these early novels. The early novels are about, the earlier novels are about, um, there's an, one's about an American girl who is in a, sort of embedded in a French family as an au pair, and one is about a, a mother and son, and one is about a sort of father and daughter, and the rest of this um, rather <laughs> dysfunctional family. You about I, to say crazy? I, yeah, I started to, but I, I kind of <laughs> was trying to shut that off. Um, and but you know, there must be I, you because the portraits are so vivid. It's almost impossible not to ask oneself as one's reading them, mm, is this a, how close is this to mm -hmm. the author's mm -hmm. life? Was, was, was her father like that? <laughs> I, I mean, you know, it's like people shouldn't do it, they shouldn't think that way, but I think it's sort of inevitable. Do you just fend that off or do you, what yeah, do you do? Yeah, you know, it's a funny thing because I hate it when people do that. I know, I'm sorry. And yet <laughs> I'm the first to do it when I'm reading someone else's book. I mean, it's running, running through my head the entire time. But I do remember when I wrote The Pleasing Hour, the first novel, um, it, was a, it is you know, about a, a young American and, and very fictional, very made up. Um, I mean, I can pick a few handful. I mean, I did live in Paris, but with an entirely different family and entirely different circumstances. And, you know, I never gave a baby to my sister, uh, <laughs> and, uh, right. for example. And... Um, <laughs> And yet, I remember, it was the early days of Amazon, and the, kind of the early days of the internet, it was 1999, and uh, I remember one of the first reviews it got was from a German in Germany saying that uh, this is so clearly, thinly disguised autobiography. And mm -hmm. I just, 
the, the authority with which this person, you know, <laughs> said these lies, you know. I, I was taken aback that people could do that, and, and I, I try to th- take it as a compliment, but, but no, it really, it really irritates me, of course. I feel but in like a way, everything, everything does come from oneself. I mean, you know, you, you can't get around that. Even if you're writing science fiction, you're, you're, you're starting from something you know, and you're bridging to something that, that is made up. But there has to be, the, the root has to start in you. Yes, yeah, that is true, and I think, you know, human experience is limited. I mean, yes. and you substitute, like with right. um, Euphoria, it was very easy to substitute a lot of things in that book for things that were familiar, even though they were completely unfamiliar in that book. You know, you just bring it to your, mm. right, uh, to, what, to what you know. We'd like to thank Philip Lopate and Lily King for joining us here at Harvard for the first Harvard Review Salon Series event. This series, featuring poets, essayists, and short story writers in conversation with the editor of Harvard Review, will be held annually at Houghton Library in the spring semester. We hope you'll join us here next year. For more information about Harvard Review, visit us at harvardreview.org. Thank you.